we arrived at a number of consensus statements, but I think the real take home from the group was that we really felt that genomes can effectively replace exome testing and microarray testing at this time. Really that this is the standard that should be achieved or at least aimed to be achieved. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and welcome to episode 67 of the Genomics Podcast. Today's show is our third episode of our four-part mini-series on clinical whole genome sequencing. In today's show, we'll be discussing laboratory and clinical best practices for implementing whole genome sequencing in rare disease diagnostics. Clinical whole genome sequencing can detect most forms of clinically relevant DNA variation for patients with rare genetic diseases. And as we've discussed in this mini-series, whole genome sequencing has the potential to supplant the traditional lengthy and costly stepwise approach to genetic testing. But to realize the full potential of clinical whole genome sequencing, it's imperative to have a set of standard lab guidelines and clinical best practices for implementing the technology. To discuss this topic, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Christian Marshall to the show. Christian is Assistant Professor and Molecular Laboratory Director in the Division of Genome Diagnostics at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Listen to Christian explain how common laboratory and clinical best practices can help enable whole genome sequencing for the diagnosis of genetic diseases. Well, Dr. Christian Marshall, I want to welcome you to the Genomics Podcast. In the show today, we're going to be continuing our ongoing discussion on clinical whole genome sequencing and the impact that next-gen sequencing is really continuing to make on healthcare. And in today's show specifically, we're going to discuss best practices and standards for clinical whole genome sequencing. And I'm really grateful to have you on the show because you are an expert in assessing diagnostic and clinical utility of whole genome sequencing. Before we get into all of those really interesting topics, though, I was wondering if you could start us off by, you know, just briefly introducing yourself and telling us how your journey in genomics got started. Thanks a lot, Paul. And it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here and to be speaking with you. By way of introduction, I'm a clinical laboratory director trained in molecular genetics. I'm currently working in the Division of Genome Diagnostics at SickKids Hospital in Toronto. My journey into genomics actually is somewhat of a meandering, I suppose, because my PhD was actually in protein biochemistry, so I didn't really get into genomics until a little bit later. But at the end of my PhD, I was a bit more interested in looking at comparative genomics, and I thought this held a lot of promise. So. I came to Toronto to postdoc in 2005 at SickKids and was lucky enough to have Dr. Stephen Scherer as uh, my mentor and supervisor. And at the time, genomic copy number variation was an emerging discovery. And my work for my postdoc really revolved around discovery of genomic variation and specifically copy number variation and how it's associated with autism spectrum disorder. And so this was really my first foray into genomics and how it could be applied to diagnostics and then further translated into testing that could benefit patients. I also really became, because I was working at the Genome Center, I also became very interested in technologies and, and how technologies work and was really interested in following how they evolved and more so even trying to figure out how to translate these into diagnostics. 
So it was really there that I, I was lucky enough to move over to the SickKids Diagnostic Lab from the Research Genome Center and have that expertise at, a, at an early time in the lab and did molecular training in both the ABMGG and the CCMG, so the American and, and Canadian boards. And now really what I'm doing is helping lead the implementation of this genomic testing for our patients here at SickKids. So you are the chairperson for an initiative that's called the Medical Genome Initiative. Can you tell us about MGI, which we'll call it, what your goals are and what the mission of MGI is all about? Yeah, of course. So uh, Medical Genome Initiative, or the MGI, it's a consortium. It's made up of institutions. There's nine different institutions, in fact. And really our common interest is in developing and deploying um, clinical genome sequencing technology for the diagnosis of those with rare germline disorders. Our institutions, and indeed obviously many others in the, around the world, have been driving forward research in genomics. But as with most tests, especially diagnostics tests, the implementation of the technologies into clinical diagnostics often lags. And the genesis really for the formation of the MGI was really born out of the realization that the implementation of clinical genomes is extremely complicated. And many of us were asking very similar type questions and recognizing that there really aren't any standards as how to do this. And so I remember, you know, our first meeting that we had, and a lot of this goes back to efforts that were made by Granger Green with Illumina, because he was uh, meeting with a lot of these different institutions and, and really realized that, that a lot of us did have the same types of questions. And really, our mission is quite simple. It's to expand access to clinical genome sequencing and through the publication of recommended laboratory and clinical best practices. And really, our overarching goal is to help those that are thinking of setting up clinical genome sequencing with essentially some advice on how to achieve this. So really sort of a how-to guide, as you mentioned, around these aspects. And an example of that would be trying to answer questions like, what should a genome test consist of? What types of patients should get a genome? And how do you actually clinically interpret a genome? So that's really the essence of what the MGI is. So what was the motivation or purpose for creating consensus recommendations, specifically when it comes to clinical whole genome sequencing? What is it about that platform that you think really calls for having some consensus guidelines? Yeah. So, I mean, as you know, there really has been a transformation in testing and especially with the technologies and specifically the use of genome-wide testing. So those arrays or even exome sequencing has transformed our ability to diagnose patients. And I think genomes is really the next step. So we, as the consortium anyway, see or the initiative, see genome sequencing as an emerging test in diagnostics, and it really is capable of replacing a lot of those aforementioned tests that are used during normal standard current care. The motivation to build or attempt to at least build consensus among our members is mainly in this trend to have this widespread implementation of the technology into the clinical systems, but there really is currently a gap in standards. And what I mean by that is there really aren't good standards to turn to what it has to do with specifically clinical genome sequencing. I think these are emerging, but have not yet quite caught up. Obviously, standards are very important to give healthcare stakeholders confidence in the quality of results, which will ultimately benefit the larger community and patients. So our consensus of recommendations that we're building are really, will give a snapshot of what is currently being done. That's the motivation for doing this, is, is what's currently being done and how are we doing it? And if we can provide practical advice to people out there, then that's our motivation. And I understand that you and your colleagues have just submitted a manuscript where you lay out your current recommendations on clinical whole genome sequencing. And it's titled Best Practices for the Analytical Validation of Clinical Whole Genome Sequencing Intended 
for the diagnosis of germline disease. So it, it's available from your MGI website for anyone who'd like to download it. And I'll give the specific link to that at the end of the podcast. Talk about this article a little bit, kind of set it up for us, give us some context about how this article came together, and then maybe share with us some of the take-home messages. Yeah, of course. The MGI is really built around identifying and prioritizing the aspects of clinical genome sequencing that need addressing. And, and what we do is we form work groups around this. So members of the institutions will form to discuss. I think we identified early on that one of our first topics should actually be how should laboratories go about analytically validating a genome test. So we thought that this was probably one of the ones that needed the most attention and where we felt like there was a big gap in standards. For this paper, as I said, we, we assembled a work group with members, mostly laboratory members from, from each of the institutions. And we essentially surveyed everybody in the group and figured out you know, what they were doing, what their current practices were, how they went about validating genome sequencing. And then we broke it down into sections. And so in the paper itself, we're talking about the different aspects of the validation, including test development, considerations for test design, the test validation practices themselves, and then ongoing metrics, um, how you monitor uh, test performance over time. We arrived at a number of consensus statements, but I think the real take home from the group was that we really felt that genomes can effectively replace exome testing and microarray testing at this time. Really, that this is the standard that should be achieved, or at least aimed to be achieved. I think the other take home that was interesting that came up, and because we had a lot of great discussion, was that in a lot of areas, consensus is hard to build, and it's in some instances not there yet. Examples of that are the types of algorithms that one might use and what the coverage of a clinical genome should be and what the minimal number of metrics are that you need to pass a clinical genome. And so I think that we thought of this in larger statements that uh, we all agreed on, but it was sometimes hard to define specifics. So I think that that's where one of the take-home messages is. And then one of the topics that you just mentioned is this ability of whole genome sequencing to replace whole exome sequencing by virtue of that, the ability to detect really all forms of genetic variation that one would be interested in from a clinical point of view. I was wondering if you could briefly discuss what kinds of variant types those are. What are the different kinds of genetic variants that you look for at a high level? What's the consensus on how labs should analyze and report all these different kinds of variants in the context of whole genome sequencing in the clinic? So that's a great question. This is one of the things where sometimes there isn't necessarily consensus, but I mean, we know from a lot of the research that our groups have done in, in examining this, that genomes can detect nearly all forms of variation. Some are better than the current techniques and some are still in development. So if we're looking at the types of variants, the first category would be small variants. So these are your normal single nucleotide variations, small insertions, deletions, duplications, usually less than 100 base pairs in size. And of course, genome sequencing does very well here. It's much more complete than a whole exome, just because it doesn't have that capture step. It's very able to detect these types of variants. The other category that is a little bit more emerging, but still where genome sequencing does well, is in structural variation. And this can be loosely divided, I think, into copy number variations. So we're talking about larger deletions and duplications that would be something that you would find on a microarray. And genomes are very good at detecting this. So things that are over a KB in size, at least, and just kind of normal, simple deletions and duplications. Other more complex type of structural variants, like smaller variants that are in uh, maybe 100 to 1,000 base pair size, and especially balance changes like translocations and inversions, I think are still very difficult to detect at a reasonable sensitivity that you might use for uh, clinical testing. So even though you can test them, it's a little bit harder to validate. 
Other types of variation, mitochondrial changes. I think that these are something that mitochondrial variants and and mitochondrial genomes are are quite good at picking these up. And then there's a, a couple more emerging types of variation. For instance, repeat expansions. These are disorders like fragile X syndrome. These types of repeat expansions, which was hard to think about actually detecting using short read technologies. However, it seems to be there are algorithms that can do this. So this this is emerging. I think there's not necessarily consensus about what to include, but I think that this is a real interesting place for development. And there's a lot of good stuff going on in research right now that we can hopefully translate over to, to diagnostics in that sort of repeat expansion. And then I think the final one is more targeted changes. So there's there's lots of pseudogenes that are medically relevant that are hard to hard to sequence the variation in, but we, you know, in a targeted sense, we're able to do this. There's also pharmacogenetic type genes or genes that are important in pharmacogenetics that we can also do. So I think these are much more targeted approaches. I see this expanding over time. I think really, as I kind of mentioned before, the consensus is that smaller variants and CNV should probably be reported as part of a genome test as a way to kind of strive to take advantage of, of what genomes can do. And I think that these other types of variation, like repeat expansions and others, are are things that will emerge over time and that people that are implementing clinical genome sequencing should be looking to add these over time. That's fantastic. And so now you've created this resource of clinical whole genome sequencing guidelines and recommendations based on really a lot of collective experience from you and, and from your colleagues. And so now looking forward, what's next for MGI? What are you all working on right now? Obviously, this is a very fast-moving field, and even topics like the analytical validity manuscript, which is in review right now, is almost needs to be updated. One of the things that we're continuing to do is keep our working groups going. I have a special interest in that analytical validity group, and continuing to discuss updates that we can publish even just on our website or as, as white papers, or even getting into more specific topics. For instance, we could write something up on what the current practices are for implementing repeat expansion testing in genomes. So I think taking a deeper dive that things that maybe couldn't fit into the manuscript. Our main focus is still around these working groups. We also have, and they're kind of at varying stages, but as mentioned, what really we want to do is look at all aspects of clinical whole genome sequencing and how it fits into medicine in general. So the other topics that we're working on, one of them right now is looking at clinical utility. So this is was led by uh, Robin Hames here at SickKids with other members of the institutions. And this is really about looking at developing a framework or toolkit on how to measure clinical utility or what the usefulness actually of the genome sequencing, the whole genome sequencing testing is. This is really aimed to provide a resource for labs and clinicians and researchers that really want to look at and characterize the value of genome sequencing beyond the laboratory. So I think this is a really important paper and one that manuscript that was uh, actually just submitted this week. Well, congratulations. That's great. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited about that one as well, because I think it's tackling another aspect. Other working groups that are ongoing right now, one of the things that's difficult, and it it seems like it might be simple, but it's not, is, is really looking at the data management and infrastructure that's needed to actually develop a test like whole genome sequencing. And this goes all the way from file formats to how much space you need and how you should probably set up your lab from a clinical sense. So we have a working group right now that's looking at essentially the data management and infrastructure, what you need for genome sequencing and how to offer that. So I think that's a little bit more of a practical how-to guide as to the types of things that you should be setting up to offer. The other active group that we have going over right now is looking at the interpretation and reporting of results. So 
really that question we were talking about a little bit before is how do you interpret a genome and what should you be reporting on when you're doing that analysis? And then lastly, on our roadmap, anyway, there's a couple more working group topics, one including patient selection. So how do you select patients that would benefit the most from a test like this? And then we're thinking about other things like communication of results, implementation, actual implementation into the healthcare system, and then surveillance and risk. So I think these are the types of topics that are keeping us busy right now. Longer term, I think we're going to have some publications this year and probably like to go around some educational activities, whether they include webinars and other things at conferences. The final question for you is, I'd like to know what excites you about the future of whole genome sequencing, particularly in medical applications? And do you have any predictions for what we're likely to see in the future? I guess I'll start with what excites me. Uh, predictions are always hard, especially because you can have uh, good intentions and then something will come along. I think it's a really exciting time to be involved. One thing for me is it's sometimes frustrating on the clinical side because uh, things move slow, much more slowly than what you'd like. But if you look at it on mass and over the last five years, I think we've come a long way. And I really do think that even though the promise of this test has been out there for a long time, I really do think it's something that will lead to an increase in diagnoses for the people that need it. And it's really exciting to see this being implemented. And I, I really do think you're going to see a lot of this testing in the next year. So this is really nothing bold, but I really do think that within the next year, uh, you're going to see a huge increase in the amount of clinical testing that's done and really to be able to take advantage of the full amount of data. I think testing, it's interesting right now that it's it's kind of confined to certain groups and this is probably because of the cost of the test, but I, I I do feel like the cost of the test will be coming down. And this will be a test that's done earlier and earlier in, in somebody's sort of diagnostic odyssey. So I really see and look forward to that happening. Maybe just a couple predictions. I mean, I think people talk about this is genome testing, this is the ultimate test, and it probably needs to be done once. I actually don't really think so. I mean, I think there's likely to be a lot of improvements in the technology in the the next couple of years. I think things have been relatively stable for a while, but what I'm really looking for is that next leap, whether it's much longer reads or de novo assembly or other things that will be the next sort of leap in the technology. So I do think that even though having the genome is very useful. I do think that might have a technological span of about five years. And then finally, I think the next prediction, or at least what I'd like to see is I'm somewhat skeptical of the whole sort of artificial intelligence movement and being able to use this deep analysis. But I do like the prospects of it. And the reason for that as a lab director, we are going to get more and more tests for genomes. It's a complicated test to interpret, and I think it has to be scalable. So I think the bottleneck is now not generating data. The bottleneck is getting it into a report that that makes sense. I really look forward to being able to use the tools out there, including automatic analysis of the health records and then putting that together with the genome data itself and maybe helping the analysts get a report that makes sense. And with this automation, obviously, standards are going to be really important. So I think it's really timely that you've created that right now. I think you're setting us up for success down the road. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we want to make sure we do. Well, Christian, I want to thank you so much for taking some of your time talking about these issues with us. Some of the things that we've discussed, it might not be necessarily on everyone's mind when they think about whole genome sequencing, but setting up all this back end and having standards that we can all abide by and agree to, I think it's really critical for moving this forward into the clinic. So thanks for joining us and thanks for being on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks very, very much for having me, Paul. 
If you'd like to learn more about the Medical Genome Initiative and download their publications, visit medgenomeinitiative.org. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss the last episode in our four-part miniseries. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or really anywhere podcasts are found. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Vandana Shashi of Duke University and Kimberly LeBlanc of Harvard Medical School. We'll be talking about short-circuiting the diagnostic odyssey and the undiagnosed diseases network, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.